200 episodes. I couldn't have imagined I'd come this far when I launched back in 2019. But a little over three years in, it feels almost surreal. If you're new to the show, welcome and enjoy all the free content. If you're a longtime fan, thank you for dropping by week after week. If you want to show me some love, go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash PhD in one word and donate. Every little bit helps. Again, thank you. And now for this week's amazing episode with Terence Milstead, where he lays out a complete blueprint for a successful career transition. That's a tension that I felt that I, you know, we have to be very careful. We don't want to come across, and we don't want to be, in fact, people who are just extracting things for our own benefit. And so for me, one of the key elements of networking and doing it in a way that feels right is looking for where's the mutual benefit and framing it that way and being upfront about that, right? Because I'm, I'm not looking to expand my circle of golf friends, uh, right? I'm looking for professional connections. Um, but I think framing it as, hey, I really think that, you know, we might be able to work together in the future because we have these overlapping interests, right? That, that's different than, um, than coming across as very sort of self-serving. Welcome to this new episode of Papa PhD. Today, I have the pleasure of having with me Terence Milstead. Terence received his PhD in urban and regional planning in 2008 from Florida State University, where his research was focused on factors that influence people to invest time, money, and emotional energy into upgrading their dwellings, even in unstable housing markets. This question led him to the former Soviet Union on a Fulbright and subsequently to other parts of the globe. But it also ignited a deep interest in qualitative research and the power of deeply listening to others. After completing his PhD, Terence started down the academic career path. However, after a few years, he realized that a full-time career in academia was not what he had envisioned. So in 2014, he transitioned to the private sector to a research-based consulting, relocating to the East Coast. But the path from academic to private sector consultant was a crooked one and didn't happen overnight. In this episode, uh, he's going to share how he came up with a transition plan that ultimately led him to his current position as head of qualitative insights at a global strategic consulting firm based in Washington, D.C. Super, super happy to have you here today, Terence. Thank you so much and, and super eager to hear your story. Thank you so much, David. And thank you for that uh, introduction. Couldn't have said it better myself. So, um, Terence, uh, we kind of alluded to quickly to the journey that you had. Uh, you also, you know, we also mentioned that it was a crooked road, which it always tends to be. Things are never super, super simple. What could you add? What would be one thing you would add so they have a better picture of who Terence Milset is as a as a as a person as a as a human uh one thing um somebody who has a wide-ranging curiosity about human behavior yeah well and and that yeah that can take take you to very interesting places and 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 we'll see that and um i'm i'm also very curious about the the traveling you did you know for to do with your research and to do with your academic interests and the former, the former Soviet Union is one for sure, but I guess we'll uh, we'll potentially touch on that 
uh, during our conversation. Um, so yeah, one of the things why I was super happy to have you on Papa PhD is I come from uh, like life sciences and a lot of my, especially early guests were people who I, whom I knew whom I had done my PhD in, in neighboring labs, but still today for me, uh, you know, I have crossed paths with some people in humanities, uh, but your domain, for example, uh, it is a domain, you know, in, of the social sciences that is, it, it's an unknown to me. Like I, I've never, I've, I haven't had conversations with people uh, cr coming uh, from uh, urban, you know, urban planning and in this type of of domain. Um, and one of the things that I'd like to do, uh, in, like in the beginning of this uh, interview, would be very quickly to ask you, what's the day-to-day -day of someone doing a PhD in that domain? Um, well, I, I guess I would start by saying um, in the social sciences, there's an entire range of disciplines that can go from, let's say, um, on one end, you've got anthropology. On the other end, I would put economics, right? So the field can vary from something that's very... Um, very, very quantitative, like on the economic side, to something that would be much more qualitative, right? And again, I'm making a generalization here, but just to understand that there's a spectrum of disciplines, um, some of which might even sort of identify more with the humanity side of things, right? Um, and so I, I say that as a context for explaining that in the social sciences, many of us, we try to... Um, adhere to the methodological standards of what we would call the hard sciences, right? Um, the chemistries, the biologies. And, and by that, I mean simply in terms of how we do the research, even though we're looking at social phenomena, right, to, to structure a research study in a way that it's, it's rigorous. And that if somebody came back in, they wanted to do the same study, right, to see if they got the same results, there's a set of steps that they would follow, right? And it's all sort of laid out. That is my training and background as a social scientist in urban planning, but you could find others from the social sciences who take a very different uh, view of how research is done and how it should be done in the social sciences. Um, and, and that's an interesting conversation for another time. Yeah, for another time, for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that was part of my, my framing. Um, I would say that as a somebody who is... So, my PhD is in urban and regional planning, but it was awarded to me through the College of Social Sciences at uh, Florida State University, where I did my graduate work. Um, I always identified as an urban sociologist, even when I was getting my PhD, and that's because my doctoral advisor uh, had her PhD in sociology. In fact, she, she was an epidemiologist um, as well. And, and so that, that's been my, as a researcher, that was always my professional identity, understanding sort of why people behave the way they do in urban settings uh, as individuals and as groups of people. It's interesting, the qualitative versus quantitative. And I do, I do understand that some researchers would tend more to be on one side of the, of that gamut and, and, and some on the other side. And, uh, and I do understand also why it's important for some s specific type of research to kind of stay close to the quantitative methods of uh, hard sciences life sciences etc makes total sense to me thank you thank you for that now I, the the reason why and we had a conversation you know before um before this interview 
where uh, you had mentioned this this um, fact that you had you know you had followed this academic path up to a certain point, and then you had you had felt okay, this is not what I what I want long term. But then you also told me that teaching is still something you like to do, and that that you still find find ways to do, it, which is which is very cool. But uh, this uh, this question, this this questioning that you that you found, uh, and maybe we can give give a small timeline, a short timeline on when that that questioning uh, arose in you of do I want to keep following this track or. Am I? Do I see myself more fulfilled somewhere else? Um, I, I think a lot of us doing PhDs at the end of the PhDs go through that questioning, and this is also why I was very happy to have you here today, because you seem to have not only felt this question in you, but then found a way or designed a way to deal with it. And, and this is this is what what I'd love to to delve into. But can you just uh, quickly talk about that moment of of inner transition of, of feeling, okay, I've been doing this now for a while, but I think where I can thrive is somewhere else. Yeah, certainly. Um, I think it's important to understand that, and I, I, it, this almost sounds facetious, I don't mean it to be that way. I went back for a master's degree and ended up getting a PhD, um, really. Uh, and I can explain how that happened, but you know, I didn't go into it thinking I want to be an academic. I went into it thinking I need to get a master's degree to help me professionally. And um, quite frankly, I fell in love with a research question. And the stars aligned in a lot of ways that I can explain that just made it a no-brainer to go on for a PhD. Um, but it was the research question that drove me because I was asking a question that I wanted to know the answer to. It wasn't anybody else's question. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then I had an opportunity to go back to live in Europe again um, on the Fulbright. So, so that's what got me through to actually getting that degree. I would say the moment when I suddenly had a uh-oh moment and realized uh, maybe this is not the place for me. It was probably the end of my second year on the tenure track uh, at the university down in North Carolina where I was teaching. Because uh, as you and many of your listeners know, your first year of teaching at a university, you are teaching prep courses. I mean, you're teaching courses for the first time. So there's a ton of work in preparing those. And you're publishing like crazy because, you know, that's what you need to do in order to get tenure down the road. And so you're very, very busy your first year. I was fortunate that I left graduate school with three peer-reviewed publications already. So I, I was a little bit ahead of the game there. Um, but by the end of my second year, I kind of looked around and thought, I don't know that, that this is going to be me for the next 30 years. Um, and I'm being very careful because, I, you know, this is just my personal experience. I, I landed in a little town on a mountaintop in North Carolina, beautiful place, um, uh, for about a week. <laughs> Gorgeous place, but, you know, I mean, it, just a very small town. It was not where I would have chosen personally, but the, the academic life is a bit like the military. You don't choose where you go so much, right? You get assigned, and, and that's where you are um, because making lateral moves from one university to another, that, that doesn't look good. That's not a good career move, right? Uh, and so really, it was at the end of my second year where I was just thinking, um, I, I just don't see myself here in, in 20 years. And then it felt like 
you know, I have an opportunity because of my, I had worked professionally prior to that for several years in my 20s, right? Um, and, and because I had a degree in a field that I felt was somewhat marketable, I felt I had a chance to make a career transition, but the window of time was closing. I intuitively knew that. And it was proven to me when I got out trying to transition into the industry that, you know, you can be in academia too long uh, if you want to make that transition. And it's something that I heard. So um, it was about the second year in when I really kind of started thinking that way. But, you know, it took me another three or four years to actually make that move. And a good year and a half to two years of that was actively strategizing and trying to to make that leap. So it, it's it was not something where I just said, I'm, I'm going to get out of here. And then I went because it, A, it's not that easy. And B, you need to be more strategic and thoughtful and do some front end work before you try and make that transition. Exactly. And uh, I, you know, this is, this makes total sense to me because um, you, you've been, especially you've said you, you just, you were just super busy that first year. And I imagine uh, being busy means like all the hours of your day going into that and none of the hours of your day going into networking, maybe like, uh, you know, widening your network, et cetera, et cetera, none of it. Or, yeah. you know, or, you know, and, and, and I believe anyway, I'm super curious to hear then what in those two, three years, what your, the process was to kind of create those bridges to then cross, you know, cross to the, to, uh, to the other, to the other side or, or leave uh, the, the tenure track. Um, but yeah uh being um so absorbed into that start the career, that new career where you need to prove yourself or you need to publish like you said and where you're kind of competing in a way for or or yeah you're kind of in into in a, in a contest to eventually gain or win this this position mm -hmm. uh you might you need to change a bunch of things to to then start you know looking at uh, at veering away and 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 uh, establishing relationships that lead to this transition being s as smooth as possible a hundred percent yeah and, and i can certainly speak to my transition strategy and tell you all about it uh, because i definitely had one but i would say even before we get to that you know it, it's important to realize in your last semester of your phd work right not only are you finishing writing a book basically you're also on the job market, right? You're sending out applications to universities, which is a huge job all by itself. So for me, at least, there was no time to sort of sit back and be reflective and think, you know, am I going to go the academic route? Am I going to go private sector, government? There's none of that. There's no time. In addition, I don't remember, and I, I really liked all of my mentors at the university. I don't remember anybody saying to me, you know, maybe you want to think about private sector work or think about government practice, right? Because there's the PhD and, the, and, and sort of the academic life in general is about creating new knowledge, right? And so your mentors at the university, if they invest that time into you, they want you to go out and produce new knowledge and to kind of continue the lineage, so to speak. Yeah. Um, so all of those things came together um, to, to sort of, I would say, you know, push me along the academic path uh, until I came to that moment where I realized uh, I, I need to strategize. I mean, just speaking about time constraints, not only, I, I do remember there was one semester uh, my second year, in addition to teaching and publishing and doing everything else, I think I was on 
13 different academic committees, which is absurd. But, you know, because for anybody who's not aware, when you're on the academic, um, on the tenure track, it's not just teaching and research. You're expected to do service and to serve on these committees because universities don't run themselves. Academic departments don't run themselves. They depend on faculty members stepping up and doing that. Um, and that all goes into your tenure folder, right, when they're making the decision. So it, it was a lot of work, certainly. Yeah. It's interesting, the the the, the point that you made of, you know, at, the, at those last six months, Time kind of disappears into this this like vortex of writing and uh, and yeah. and uh, applying etc cetera, etc. Cetera. And my point that I try to uh, to to you know drive through uh, with Papa PhD and whenever I can is if start early like it, it, ideally day one of your PhD you should already start to consider like the the multiverse of things you might be doing although you might already be focused on 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 professorship. Uh, it's it's useful to start early doing little things that that uh open your eyes to what's out there but also put you in contact with people who are out there i'm thankful that you mentioned that because the last year is too late in a way because you know you're getting to this very very quick pace of finishing yeah. and uh, anxiety and uh, <laughs> you know it's it's not um it's not easy to 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 organize a pivot at that stage. David, I would add something to that, um, and I was just thinking about it. The other complication is, for me, whenever I wanted to make that transition, timing is such a complicated issue because I didn't want to leave in the middle of a semester. That's not fair to the students, right? Um, and so you're teaching semester to semester with these little windows of time in between. So trying to time your exit so that it just perfectly coincides with those little slivers of time is almost impossible. Uh, and, and so I'll, I can tell you, ultimately, what I ended up doing was turning in my resignation at the beginning of a semester. And even before I had anything lined up, because I knew that that was the only way I was really going to be able to do it without um, being unfair to the students and to the department as well, right? You don't want to just turn in two weeks notice. You can't do that. So going back to that second year and that realization of, you know, I don't see myself do, doing this or doing just this for, you know, for, for 20 years, uh, et cetera. So you also mentioned that then it took time to set everything up and to, and to prepare everything. What was, what was the first thing? Because, I imagine you were in this routine of teaching. Like you said, there's little, very little off time. Uh, what was the first thing that, I, that you kind of said, okay, I, this is a big change on the mid long term, but I have to start with the, with the, with a small change. I imagine to begin with, because like you said, I have students, I have, you know, I, I'm, I'm doing all the teaching. I'm taking part in all these committees, strategically what was the first thing that you that you uh, adopted or the new habit or the new routine to kind of start leading you into that path of pivoting um the most important thing i did was i picked up the phone and i called somebody who i knew who was a consultant in my world uh, on the non-academic side in the architecture urban planning world a successful consultant uh his name is joe minicosi he, he might actually be listening i don't know he's on my linkedin network and I said to him, listen, Joe, 
I want to make this change, but I have no idea where to start. And he gave me advice. And this is what the advice was. Step number one is figure out where you want to go, where you want to land physically. Okay. So for me, that was the East Coast because that's where I wanted to live. And also that's where there just happened to be a lot of job opportunities. So figure out where you want to go. Step two, set aside money. This is going to cost money. Set aside some money and make networking trips up there as frequently as you can. For me, it was once a month. So once a month for six months, I took trips and I hit New York, DC, and Philadelphia. And these trips would be a few days. You know, I tried to space them around when I wasn't teaching. Uh, step three, before I made any of those trips, I made up a list of everybody who I thought might be an industry player in those places. I went to industry websites. I read the news reports. I, I did everything that I could. And I came up with this list with email addresses. And before I would go up each time, I would email people and say, and so my message was not, hey, I'm looking for a job. Can you help me? I'm coming up. My message was, this is who I am. I'm thinking of relocating to the area. I'd love to buy you a cup of coffee or lunch and just sort of pick your brain so I can expand my understanding of what's happening in the industry landscape. Okay. I, I did the math. I probably sent out 500 emails and I got about two dozen meetings. So it's a numbers game. But those two dozen meetings were with elected officials. They were with um, principals at consulting firms. They were with um, community leaders, nonprofit uh, leaders. And they weren't always over coffee. Sometimes they were over conference room tables. But that's what I did. So each trip before I went, I had a, an agenda that I had put together with timing of this is when I'm meeting this person for lunch. And, and that's how I got my foot in the door. Ultimately, a year and a half, two years later, one of those people called me up and said, I'm leaving my job. I told my boss I would find a good replacement. And so it was that personal connection that, that ultimately worked for me. Um, but that was the strategy. That's amazing because you, you put in practice <laughs> just all the points that, that I, I try to, you know, to, uh, to hammer uh, anytime I can here on, on I'm, I'm always thinking of, of graduate students. So it's a bit different, but You know, we talk about informational interviews, and I think that's what you did. Uh, but you, the thing is, you did it in person, and often what I recommend because it's less investment, in, and you, you you don't have to be so afraid of going and meeting the the person uh, in person is using LinkedIn to do kind of the same thing, and and to start as as early as possible in grad school. But you uh, you actually went, and uh, like you said, you invested time and money. In, in in a very targeted strategy and what was the thing that in the end brought you to this to this uh new space was a connection you had made two years earlier uh, right. and one very important thing that you mentioned is okay you may be looking for work but don't have converse tra transactional conversations of hey do you have a job for me exactly because that's not a good place to be to have to really have a, per, a relaxed person in front of you who's going to share, who's going to tell you what the day-to-day -day of the job is, who's going to show you the ropes in a certain way. That's right. That's right. They can read between the lines. They, you don't need to come right out and do the hard sell. Um, but again, it's sort of a, a longer-term strategy because I still, to this very day, 
have many of those same connections and I cultivate those relationships and I, you know, will go have coffee with people just to keep the relationship going. Um, but you're, you're absolutely right. That's a, a tension that I felt that I, you know, we have to be very careful. We don't want to come across and we don't want to be, in fact, people who are just extracting things for our own benefit. And so for me, one of the key elements of networking and doing it in a way that feels right is looking for where's the mutual benefit and framing it that way and being upfront about that, right? Because I'm, I'm not looking to expand my circle of golf friends, uh, right? I'm looking for professional <laughs> connections. Um, but I think framing it as, hey, I really think that, you know, we might be able to work together in the future because we have these overlapping interests, right? That, that's different than, um, than coming across as very sort of self-serving. Super, super important point. And again, even if, uh, you know, you're listening, you're in graduate school, and for you, this is just going to be finding someone on LinkedIn who has a journey, a professional journey that you think, oh, this is cool. It, this what that we just said, this that Terence just shared is very, very, very important. I'm impressed that at the investment and and also at the advice that this mentor gave you, uh, uh, you know, put money aside. So this is a something you need to, if you want to make this happen in a timely manner, you need to invest in it. Yeah, Time yeah, and money, and and it's an interesting point. Certainly, yeah. And I will say this was exactly 10 years ago when I was doing this. So I, I don't even remember using LinkedIn at that time. I'm sure it existed. But, you know, this was pre-LinkedIn. But I am old school that way. Um, even in the, you know, um, the post-COVID, hopefully, era that we're in, I, I still believe in the power of sitting down with somebody face-to-face -face and, and just having that conversation. So um, a few years ago, several years ago, actually, I was doing focus groups here in Philadelphia for... Uh, a client, Philadelphia International Airport, and they wanted to look at market demand for business class travel between Philadelphia and Asia. And one of the participants in the focus group was a, an attorney who did a lot, a lot of work in Japan. And he told me, in Japan, business decisions are not made before the third face-to-face -face meeting, right? So I don't know if that was true, or I'm assuming it was, or whether it's still true, but there's a deep insight there, you know, that that human contact really does matter a lot of times. Yeah, and one of one of the things that that is interesting, or that that I'd be interested in in, in analyzing, is so you had a bunch of conversations. You know, this is two years after you started doing it, and you you met physically a, a bunch of people, and you couldn't. How can I say? You couldn't have predicted that this person or that that person would be coming back to you, but you you kind of believed in the process of of creating and nourishing these relationships, and and where I'm getting is the earlier you start, the the more relaxed you are, and also the more this these kind of random. Uh, uh, random occurrences of someone getting back to you, having thought of you for a position, can occur too. It's it's like a it's like like um, throwing a net. It's not a good image, but um, no, I, I I I absolutely see the image. I and I don't use the term anymore because it sounds very aggressive. But I sort of used to say that I carpet bombed the East Coast with parents. <laughs> I just made sure as many people as possible knew my name, which, you know, is a drop in the bucket when you're thinking about the region. But that was sort of my strategy. And, you know, David, I often 
think about sometimes you'll hear people say, oh, well, that person, they got ahead because they have connections, right? Well, mm. the truth is not everybody is born with connections and making those connections is a skill in its own right. And, and so I think it's important to um, not just network, but to think about networking as a very valuable and marketable skill, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not just about getting a job. It's something that you'll be able to use once you land that job. Mm -hmm. That's that's super, super interesting. Um, and it's something also I've never looked at it that way. As And now that you, that you mention it, I do know some people for whom this this capacity for networking and even community building, uh, at, you know, when you get to a certain level, community building has been a game changer in their in their careers after after their PhD for sure. Like I, I have a couple of people in mind. Um, now, one thing, uh, so this thing about having conversations and and establishing uh, like real connections with people, uh, it's something that I really, really believe, uh, believe in. And I'm so happy that you bring it, you know, that you bring it as kind of the centerpiece or at least the starting point of this process of pivoting today. I'm really happy for that. Now, one of the things that I try to tell people, but I'd like to hear your experience, uh, is what 20 minutes with someone can bring you. And often I talk in terms of, okay, you want to access... Uh, let's say, uh, data science. And well, one thing you can learn by having conversations with people is the jargon of people who work in data science, which is not going to be the same as, as what you used doing statistics in your PhD. What are the things that having these conversations bring you that slowly transform you into a, a better and better candidate for a position in that space? Again, this sounds self-serving, and it is, but one of the main things you get out of that 20-minute conversation is who should you talk to next, right? And, but, but also what you're getting out of the conversation sort of at an aggregate level is who's who. Who are the players? What's that constellation of players in that industry? Because that's incredibly important to map out and just to have as knowledge. Um, apart from that, uh, which I would say identifying the influencers would be I always try to cultivate a macro level understanding of, of whatever the industry landscape is. And for me, that means uh, understanding economic trends, understanding political trends, understanding um, social trends. So again, just at a high level, so not going into a, a networking meeting and trying to understand the, the specifics of something very, very technical or very nuanced, right? But you're not gonna get that in 20 minutes. Uh, you want to start from a higher level uh, and build that understanding of, again, what does the overall landscape look like? What are the trends? What are the patterns? What are the emerging events, right? And then who are the players? Because if you can then, you know, go into, when you do get into the industry with that sort of broad understanding, um, it, it makes it, when you do the very technical work or, or the very nuanced work, right, you're able to understand that in a, a much different way. And I imagine also um, that, and we, well, we haven't gotten there yet, but that whenever you have a first actual conversation about a position, and well, your case was special because someone thought of you and, and kind of brought you in, but that first conversation with the other people in the organization, you will sound as, you know, you will sound as if you've been like swimming in this domain for years because 
you've done you've done this this homework, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> Very cool. Now we've talked about people, and and I don't know if you have kind of a, a logical step of what comes next, but um, if you do, I'll I'll let you follow it. But my where where now I have a curiosity is you know we're talking about uh, relationships with people and how that kind of brings us into a space and 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 gets us more knowledge about the space but also th this question of networking but then companies or government or uh, organisms is a different you know it's a different thing uh, it, once you actually want to to get into a position there are processes to get hired there are interviews you have to go through um and I, you know, I, I'd be interested in in knowing how you prepared yourself for that. I think it is important to point out to listeners that my background and my degrees are in urban planning. I currently work as a strategic consultant in sort of the corporate communication space, so totally different. And whenever I tell that to people, they're often like, "Well, how did you go from urban planning to to you know um, storytelling and 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 market research?" Because it seems like it was a total break, but it wasn't. And so the strategy there is that I think about my professional journey sort of as a, a series of Venn circles, a Venn diagram where there's overlap between each circle. Um, I, I kept making incremental changes, so sort of taking one step to the right and putting my right foot in a new professional world, but keeping my left foot in the old world and doing that you know, um, continually. So there was this stepwise movement that I can explain to you how it played out, but that, you know, there's a, a, um, a very clearly identifiable thread through all of my professional experiences that from where I was to where I am right now. Mm -hmm. So this brings up something that I think is very important, which is wherever you are in your professional journey, thinking about what are the parallel paths that exist right now, parallel to my particular journey my road that I'm on. So in other words, where are the people who are basically doing exactly what I'm doing? They're just calling it something else. Mm -hmm. And then not only identifying where those parallel paths are, but if we continue with the analogy of a road, where is the next crossover or the next opportunity for me to cross the median safely, right? So that I can get on that other path. And then the third part is knowing, okay, I see it coming what do I need to have in place in order to be able to make that transition? So step one is identifying where those those other fields are, where you might be able to take your skills that you already have, which you first need to identify and market, right? Um, where can you take those skills and simply apply them, maybe with some additional knowledge and training, right? But apply them pretty seamlessly to some other line of work, because that's what I did. Again, you really sum it up really well. And, 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 uh, uh, I almost don't, don't have anything to add, but one of the things uh, that that I take from that, and that often is a challenge, especially if you're in graduate school, and probably when you wake up in the morning, morning, what you envision in front of you is becoming a professor. And I, I think I, I mentioned that some somewhere in the beginning of the interview is. There's kind of a multiverse, you know, like in a Marvel Universe now. There's like multiverse, and yes. you know, there's there's a doc, you know Doctor Strange uh, in Universe One, but then there's Doctor Strange in Universe uh, Two Hundred and whatever. Mm -hmm. And it it what you just said makes me think of that, which is first 
oh, super interesting what the, the other Doctor Strange is doing on, in that universe. And I hope there's no copyright infringement now here. <laughs> but uh, interesting what he's doing. How do I, how do I teleport to that universe? And uh, like you said, what like small increment of what skill, what course can I take? Let's say in programming, you know, right now it's one of the things that, you know, people coming from, from sciences, a lot of them are going to data science. And then there's a, there's a specific set of software that, uh, that, are, that are used, like uh, Python and things like that. Oh, well, if I take this course in Python, all of a sudden I can teleport, you know, yeah. when I want. It's super, super interesting. And, and it, it, it makes total sense to me what you're saying. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I, I'm more of a DC Comics guy. I think about uh, Bizarro, Superman, and Solomon Grundy. I don't know if you remember them, but same sort of concept. Parallel universe where there's uh, an evil Superman. But yeah, how do you uh, transition into that, um, you know, into the upside down, to use a Stranger Things yes. sort of analogy? <laughs> yeah, and so one of the things that, that often um, graduate students is uh, their issue with time. And uh, you have mentioned that even for yourself in that in those first years of, of tenure track, you didn't have a lot of time either. So, and, and you were those slivers of time, like you like you called them. You were really like maximizing what you you could make out of them. Do you have a best practice that that you could share on how to, even if your time is really allotted for different things in your graduate school day to day? To re to still be able to weekly or you know every two weeks incrementally do do one little thing and then you'll see at the end of the year you look back and and you're like oh I've learned this extra skill or I, I now I can actually go talk with people in this domain because I took this course in whatever because it's a it's a challenge they they always mention they always mention the students. Yeah, I just last week was given a presentation within my company on decision models. And one of the models that we talked about was the Pareto principle, which I, I know you're familiar with, you know, the, that idea that 80% um, of the impact that you're going to have is based on 20% of the effort that you're going to put in. So figuring out where that 20% is and focusing on that, um, even before I understood what the Pareto principle was, I, I kind of used that as a strategy. And so I would look for, again, going back to the Venn diagram analogy, where were the areas of overlap, of convergence, so that I knew if I put my effort there, I was going to get uh, uh, maximize my, my output. So an example of that would be, you know, if you're in graduate school and you're doing research work or research projects, right, as part of your research process, if you're doing stakeholder interviews, you know, or, or if you're doing any sort of contextual research, right, don't just look at the interviews that you might do in the connections as data inputs. Look at those as long-term investments, right? Those are relationships that you're building. Um, and so that that's one way that you can do networking while you're doing research, I think. Um, certainly, academic conferences, most graduate programs, well, I guess it depends on the program you're in, will provide graduate students, you know, selectively with the uh, money to attend the annual conference, whatever your, your field is. So there again, that's not just an opportunity for you to go present your research findings or to sit back and listen to others. It's an opportunity to meet people, to network and, and, um, and, and again, I think it's important that you think about those conferences not as a, you're going to go shake hands, have a few drinks, and move on. It's like you're looking for where are there mutually beneficial relationships that you can start to cultivate, right? But that's just 
the first step, then it's uh, uh, this process of continuing to maintain those relationships. And I would also say it's, you know, the, the flip side of that is it takes a lot of effort to build those relationships. It takes very little effort to destroy them. But again, that's a topic for another time as well. So it's sort of understanding um, the fragility of some of those professional relationships as well. So this concept of kind of uh, bringing together two things that you thought might not be associated, but because you're already doing this one, you know, like like going to conferences, you can, uh, I'm thinking of my domain, in conferences, usually there are uh, booths of, of different sponsors. Oh, you can talk to those people and see some of them will be PhDs or, you know, will have graduate uh, degrees and and uh, it's it's interesting. So be be strategic in 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 doing things without going too much off of your academic path, but seeing opportunities day to day that that you might have ignored otherwise. Yeah, let me give you another example, David, um, to make it really applied. When I was teaching down at Appalachian State University, I made a real concentrated effort at least once a year to teach what we called studio courses. So this would be a course where my students and I would be working on a, and I'm doing this in air quotes, a real world project, meaning it would be a project that had been presented to us by a local government or a, municipi- um, a local nonprofit. So it was a real project that would last over the course of the semester where we were working as a project team and that you know we had a client. And my job as the professor would be to set up those relationships well before the semester ever started, right? So building those relationships in that professional community so that I could then see where is there a need, because then I could take that, take it to the department chair, sell it as an idea for a course. She could take it to the dean, right? Get it funded because obviously that's how it works, right? You got to get the class funded before it ever happens. Um, So that's a perfect opportunity of where teaching and research can intersect with something that's really concrete, tangible, real world. And then if you do make the transition to the job market, so hey, first of all, not only are your students getting this great experience where they'll have this portfolio of work to show at the end of a class, but you can point to your, what's no longer a CV, but it's going to be a resume. You can point to it and say, here's a, a project that I worked on that, you know, for a local government and we had real deliverables. And so that that's, again, just an example of, of how to reorient your thinking towards um, away from theory and more towards practice. That's a great example. And um, there's some creativity in there. You, you, for sure you have, you're a creative uh, thinker and, uh, and, uh, um, but I think it's it can be inspiration for for everyone. And one ones some things I've seen with graduate students, and I, I always think of um, Adriana Bankson, who's now you know, working uh, in Washington. But for her, it was uh, as a, as a graduate student with other colleagues setting up this um, this seminar series with alumni talk, coming to talk about their careers and what they did. Uh, you know, outside academia, which she she left, she finished her degree long ago, but that seminar series continued uh, ongoing. And that experience is very aligned with being a graduate student. Uh, and it's, you know, it's within the, the, the day-to-day of, of that life, yeah. but really opened her, you know, opened her doors to her, expanded her network. But also later on, she could, 
you know, when she came on the on the show, it was one of the things she shared. So it's something you can share as look at something I did in graduate school that was a little bit different and that was really eye-opening, et cetera, et cetera. Totally. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you something that I did that was um, probably one of the funnest things I, I did when I was a professor. Um, and it was when I knew I'd, I'd already turned in my resignation. So it was my last semester. Um, we had a facility on our campus that did production, television production. Uh, and I stopped in and just started talking to them a little bit about an idea I had because I knew I had one of these networking trips coming up. And I arranged for them because I was teaching a big class with probably 120 students. So it was auditorium style seating with the big movie screen that came down. So we arranged for the production people to come into my class and set up the equipment. And then I actually phoned into the class by video remotely from Manhattan. Right. And, and sort of like was walking around. Yeah, sure. Because it was an urban planning class. Right. And was able to interact with my students and the production people were able to like, you know, give me close ups of the students asking the questions. And it was beautiful. I mean, it, they loved it. I loved it. I hope the students did as well. And it was again, it was a little self-serving because I needed to be up there to do what I needed to do. But um, again, it, you know, there are opportunities, I think, to get creative and sort of work a little bit outside of um maybe what what would normally be acceptable um but no i i agree it's it, sometimes it's um first there's the creative you know the, the the idea needs to pop up in your mind and then it's it's uh allowing yourself to believe it's a good idea <laughs> and then Advo advocate for it to yeah. you know in front of whoever needs to sign the <laughs> sign sure. the check or whatever yeah. um but um i think for students, there's a lot of opportunities like that 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 present themselves. Uh, one one of the there's some easy ones like here. There's a Brain Awareness Week uh, every year, and there's a few organizations uh, in in that week that uh, ask graduate students to volunteer and to go to schools to teach about the brain and they bring a, a calf brain and uh, this and they have these experiments, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. These are all little things that are aligned with what you're doing but that when later on when you're talking when when you're, you're showing your resume it really shows a more 3d version of you versus just the academic and that's that's what i find super super interesting and in your case oh you're not just the professor who's like uh you know le lecturing and pointing at a at a, a whiteboard or whatever. No, you, you you know you brought different things and you did this uh, like multimedia <laughs> class. It's super interesting and it's it goes with the, this concept of mine of and I just kind of alluded to it of if you just show your CV or your resume and you send it, you're two D like like the sheet of paper. But if you've uh, invested in in enriching your journey. With other things, with with some creative, uh, like juices of, of establishing connections, doing multidisciplinary things, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, then you become three D in in a sense. That's right. Uh, yeah, we're, we're reaching sadly the the end of the interview. I I wonder whether you had you had another uh, step to to the to the process to add or or a final. Uh, maybe a, the final chapter of of that transition that you that you lived that you want to share. I think the final chapter um, always is take the mindset of lifelong learner. Uh, 
every time that I've made the transition, a big career transition, even if it was incremental, you know, it's been like starting graduate school again. I mean, 10 years ago when I transitioned out of academia into private sector consulting, um, I, I look back and laugh at how little I knew and how much I thought I knew, right? Uh, because I, I had no idea about just, the, and this could be a topic for another time, the difference between how, um, how we see things in an academic environment versus how we see things in a business environment, how we communicate differently in those two contexts. Uh, but at the same time, figuring out what are the transferable skills. Um, a couple pieces of advice to any graduate student listening to this. If you get the chance to teach courses while you're working on your PhD, do it because that's public speaking experience and that's highly marketable and not everybody can do it. And when you have to stand up a couple times a week in front of 150 students or however many and project your voice to the back of the room and you learn body language, right? That That's a highly prized and marketable skill. So don't pass up that opportunity. Um, I think the other thing to understand is that so when we do research in a social science setting, we don't just suddenly say, okay, we're going to do surveys or we're going to do focus groups, right? There's a research design under which those particular methods make sense. And the research design is well understood. It's established. It's a model that others are, you know, know is useful for this type of research question. In the business world, and in the, for that matter, in the government world as well, um, we shouldn't go straight to tactics whenever we're trying to solve a problem. Instead, we should think about what's the strategy under which those tactics make sense. So what I'm saying is I've seen that there's uh, analogous thinking between research design, strategy, research methods, and tactics. And always, so the PhD experience for me cultivated that type of an analytical mindset where I was always asking myself, you know, what is the larger strategy, even though I wasn't calling it that. And that's very, very useful um, in, you know, all sorts of settings outside academia. Um, and the other thing is when you're working on a research project, one of the very first things that you learn is to ask yourself some foundational questions. What is my research question? Why is this important? Who's it important to? How are the findings going to be used, right? So those are also questions that are great to ask in any corporate board meeting or any internal company meeting. Why are we meeting? What's the point of this meeting? What do we hope to have accomplished at the end of this 45 minutes, right? How are we going to use the information? Who's doing what next when? So it's that very systematic sort of upfront thinking. Again, it's an analytical mindset. It's very transferable uh, outside academia. So um, I, I would just encourage people to Give some thought to identifying those characteristics or skills that you're learning through your PhD studies and thinking about, okay, what do they look like in the, uh, in the upside down world or right, in the bizarro universe? What are they called by a different name? I would kind of loop back to the beginning, to that first step that you mentioned of talking, you know, having informational interviews with people. And once, you know, once you, you're kind of, going back home from that informational interview try to think of the the the, the words mentioned the if the, if you talked about the day to day of the job and try to to make connections from that that the person shared to what you do in graduate school and slowly you'll be able to it, maybe it won't be apparent the first time but eventually you'll see these patterns and and you say okay like you mentioned public speaking 
interesting. That's appreciated in this domain that I want to go into. Huh. I will mention it whenever I apply for a position. Yeah. The danger is because we live in graduate school, we live in that, we don't see these things. They're invisible to us. And I'm super, super appreciative that you, you're putting them out there and, and saying them so that people can realize and have that aha of, oh, actually, I'm doing this, but I'm also doing, it can also be called this, and people out there appreciate it. Super, super. 100%. Important. Yeah. And research, just last piece of advice, to the extent that you can, if you're a quantitative researcher, try to get some qualitative research experience as well. If you're a qualitative researcher as a graduate student, try to get some quantitative research experience. Having that uh, combination, I think, is is really helpful and important. Um, as you know, I'm head of qualitative insights at Storyline Strategies, right? So my primary job is not only facilitating focus groups and in-depth interviews and ethnographies and all of that. It's helping to build out that function um, of our job. But I work for a firm that offers best-in-class research, really combined with best-in-class storytelling. So it, it really is a, an opportunity, a unique opportunity for me to take some of the skills that I developed as a researcher and apply them in this, um, as you said, creative way. Mm -hmm. yeah, and actually, uh, I was going to ask you where people can, can reach out to you, but I'm just, uh, the company you mentioned is called Storyline Strategies. And uh, for people on, on YouTube or LinkedIn, it's scrolling down here right now storylinestrategies.com um apart from facebook where uh, people can find you as terence milstead too what's the best if someone you know listen to this interview and they're like oh man terence really shared some some cool stuff but i'd like to ask him a few questions what's the best way to reach out to you I'm on LinkedIn, um, active on LinkedIn. And of course, they can always reach out. My email address is terrencemilstead at gmail.com. But, uh, but either of those, LinkedIn or Gmail, is the best way to get in touch with me. Because I do uh, periodically offer individualized coaching. My time is pretty booked right now. But um, from time to time, you know, I do individualized coaching. So I'm always happy to have conversations with, with anybody. Great. So you know what? I'll take. I'll uh, get your LinkedIn link and also put it in the in the show notes, so so people can reach out to you. Terence, this was great. I really really enjoyed this conversation. You've put words and examples on, on on things that I've reflected on and that I try to share, but all in in one go. It was awesome. Thank you so much. I, I really enjoyed it, David. Thank you so much for having me on. 